Welcome to Have You Heard? I'm your host, Jack Schneider. And I'm your co-host, Jennifer Berkshire. Regular listeners may note something amiss today, and that's because we have reversed roles a little bit. Jennifer, I hope that you feel up to playing the role of deeply informed expert who gets called in once in a while to make really pithy and insightful observations. But first, can I talk about how busy I am? (laughs) Uh, Today's episode is about a couple of different things, Um, but really at its heart, it's about a kind of paradox that on the one hand, uh, we have seen over the past couple of decades, the eradication of high stakes tests for students. Today, there are only eight states that still have exit exams or, you know, a de facto exit exam that students need to pass in order to get their diplomas. And yet we see that High-stakes tests for schools are very much alive and well, that they're required by federal law and that all 50 states have them. And although there is chafing and resistance to those, that it doesn't appear that they are on the way out in any way, shape, or form. And so we are just going to explore what's going on there. Like, what explains this kind of... uh, divided consciousness with regard to the role of tests and the appropriateness of stakes. Well, Jack, I feel like I have severely underestimated you all this time because usually what happens is that I start off the episode and then I basically like write everything down for you on cards. (laughs) Well, I've got cards for you, Jennifer. And I think what I need to remind you is that I am a person of very limited capacity, uh, so you should not think like, oh, he's good at th- I'm not good at this. I, I'm just, I'm rising to the occasion. I can't actually do that. This is, this is your, this is your area. Well, I still have the essential role of introducing our special guests and stepping in occasionally to provide some zippy narration, like I'm doing right now. We're joined today by old friend of the show, Ethan Hutt. He's an assistant professor in the School of Education at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and first time have you heard guest Katie McDermott. She's a professor of education and public policy at UMass Amherst. That's right. We require two experts today to help us untangle the complex an ever-evolving world of high-stakes testing. And the first thing you need to know is that those stakes that we now attach to whole schools, well, they used to be borne by students themselves. Ethan says that's a phenomenon that dates back to a moment of high social anxiety. In the 1970s, you see people really start talking about introducing exit exams, especially high school exit exams, as like a the forward-thinking policy. And I think there are a couple of things that come into play. One is you have a, a big discourse in the 70s that goes into the 80s, and you see it in a nation at risk, is that standards are falling in our schools. And you have a lot of mediocrity. You have schools that are not making 
American students and workers competitive. And so you have this sort of economic malaise and you have this view that the schools aren't good and and people aren't working hard. And the phrase that was commonly used is the value of the diploma has been diminished. And so people have no faith that a student who who graduates from high school can actually like do the work. And so you get this idea that, okay, we need to hold the line. And there, I think there's a part of that conversation that really is rooted in a, in a sense of concern, outshoring jobs and sort of changing economy. But there's definitely a part of it that's rooted in the sort of aftermath of desegregation. Now, if you listen to our recent episode about the reading wars, and you absolutely should, you will recall that quote-unquote back-to-basics movements have reared up repeatedly, especially in times of demographic change. You know, this is partly a way of, of coded speech around like, well, now we've integrated our schools and the quality has declined and now anyone can graduate from, you know, our local prestigious high school. And so there's this idea that we need to set standards and not let lazy students through. You know, there were lots of stories in the 70s that, you know, students who were in 10th grade can't read. They don't know how to address an envelope or something like that. So it's like, you know, no life skills. And so the idea was like to put those in to make sure that students were focused, were working hard. There was less discussion, I think, about schools themselves, but this idea that they were they were protecting the value of the diploma and making sure that students were actually working hard and, and not just promoting because the year had turned over. So lots of talk about competency and protecting the value of the diploma. But then Katie says that the rationale for the tests started to change. But then in the 90s, you get this phenomenon of we're going to have a graduation test. We're going to raise the standards. And it's actually going to be an equity intervention because we think that all kids can reach these high standards. And if every kid in our state has passed this more difficult graduation test, then there won't be as much of an advantage to being from, say, Wellesley rather than Boston. If you're both applying for the same job, the employer is going to respect the value of the Boston diploma because they know that the student has at least mastered this body of material. So the theory of change was really more about the kids, I think, that the schools will sort of keep doing what they're doing, but the, the kids will somehow learn more. Okay, so we've got the theory of change here that, you know, we're going to protect the value of the diploma. That will be good for young people. It'll be good for business. It may be good for broader society. And the young people are going to be more motivated to work harder in school because they know that there's a chance they could be denied a diploma. How'd it go? What did we learn about that theory? Well, almost immediately in the 80s, like you get problems because for the first time, states are having to come to grips with the fact that, okay, so this policy, as I think we sort of indicated, you know, comes down from up top. Legislatures get really excited about this idea. They're going to hold the line. They're going to pass a test. No diplomas without a demonstration of competency. And of course, you take away someone's diploma or you, you, run afoul of their educational rights and, they, and there are lawsuits. And so one of the very first things that happens in Florida is there's a case called Deborah P where basically students are saying, okay, I did everything I was supposed to do. I, I otherwise passed all my tests, but I didn't have an opportunity to learn the things that are on this test. Like they were never taught to me, but essentially like states for the first time have to grapple with sort of the complexity of their decentralized system that just because they set a standard at the end, 
doesn't mean that it automatically like ensures that it gets all the way through. And so it kind of breaks down and the exam consequences are delayed for a period so that the state can kind of get on its footing. If you think about it as in terms of like an implementation, it almost immediately kind of runs aground on the complexity of actually making sure that kids are learning what you want, which is sort of a recurring theme for the next 40 years. And also it, it doesn't seem to work. Ethan says that even when this early generation of graduation tests did what they were ostensibly designed to do, meaning weed kids out to protect the value of the diploma, there was no corresponding celebration, say the business community cheering newly competent young workers. Instead, almost immediately, the policy gets mired in the question of what these tests are actually for. Here's Katie again. Yeah, it's actually, it's those lawsuits that are part of why these tests stayed at a competency level, because if you are testing students on what you think is 12th grade material in 12th grade, there's a decent chance that a lot of students are going to fail that test. So that's why a lot of the graduation tests then move earlier in high school so that you're testing 10th graders ostensibly on 10th grade level material and they've got another couple of years to learn it before they're expected to graduate. You can imagine how a competency test would get even more minimal if a state is fearing massive lawsuits. That's where the theory of change came in that said, well, we just need harder tests then. It's that oh-so-familiar education reform tale. Something that sounds great in the abstract or in its logic model form doesn't gleam quite so brightly when put into practice. Responding to the rhetoric of the time, policymakers came up with a stick to make schools more efficient and to make lazy students work harder. And they ended up seeding political backlash to that policy. When students started failing exit exams, it created a lot of very sympathetic students who were saying, I did everything that was asked of me, like, look at my grades. <laughs> and now you're denying the diploma because of some test that I've never seen before. And so it created kind of a, a weird dynamic where, and you see this in like news articles that, you know, there's always a profile of a student who was otherwise good and well-liked and all that stuff. There's also a hard political line of like, our policy is working, like graduation rates are down. As Katie's suggesting, there's like this really delicate balance. Okay, if it gets too high, then it seems like, well, we're back in the realm of undervaluing the diploma. But if it's too high, then it's like, what is happening? People don't really like when you criticize their local schools. So if the local schools are performing poorly, then people start to push back and go, well, what is this thing? Again, even if you have a worldview that posits like lazy students and inefficient schools, it becomes a pretty difficult politics to, to navigate. Okay, so... We have the origin of high-stakes tests for students, tests that can result in them being denied a diploma in the 1970s and 80s, and we see that that plays out in some problematic ways. Eventually, that does come back, but in between, we get a shift where suddenly the stakes start being applied to schools. That's something that most of us are familiar with right now, that all public schools have to take tests in grades three through eight, as well as one year of high school. There are varying consequences depending on when you're looking, whether it's in the NCLB era or the ESSA era. Is this the same theory, different theory, just a result of, you know, a new generation of policymakers who weren't aware of the problems with high-stakes testing when the stakes were applied to students? What's going on? What explains that shift? You could call it faith in local control, or you could call it magical thinking. It's probably a little bit of both, that if 
you put pressure on schools to educate all kids to about the same threshold level of educational attainment, which is something historically we've never been able to do. If you put pressure on schools to do that, they'll rise to the occasion the same way that the kids were assumed to rise to the occasion if they had to pass a test to graduate. And I know that what happened in Massachusetts was not that the school districts and the schools said, wow, this is great. We've got all this freedom to figure out how to respond to the incentives that the state has put in front of us. They turned right back to the state and said, how are we supposed to do this? We've never done anything like this before. Can you give us some guidance? And that's where you run into the idea that incentives aren't enough. You need some kind of capacity to respond to the incentives. That's where this whole industry around school turnarounds and hire us, bring us in, we'll, tell you, we'll fix your school for you. And states that require schools or, and districts to partner with these turnaround organizations, which are always somewhere in the private sector, mostly nonprofit, just this belief that somewhere out there is this capacity and magic intervention that will make all of this work. Katie says that when she talks to her grad students about the view of schools in which the magical combination of sticks and standards can produce stellar results for all kids, she often uses the metaphor of running, something she knows very well. I'm a very slow runner, and you could tell me that I have to run an eight-minute mile, and you could put positive incentives in front of me. You know, I'm going to get a really nice bottle of wine if I run an eight-minute mile, or you could get the neighbor's scary dog to chase me. And I don't have an eight-minute mile. There's no set of incentives you could put in front of me to make me run that fast. I think schools' capacities to change and grow are probably much greater than my capacity to run fast, so it's not a great analogy. But it's definitely relevant here. It's a, it's a task that historically our public schools have never performed. We've never historically asked high schools to teach all students the same thing. The rise of universal high school education in the U.S., was very much around differentiation and not everybody needs to learn the same things. And then to flip that in the 80s and 90s and say, well, now we're actually going to get rid of the general track in high school and everybody has to learn the same curriculum. It's going to be on the graduation test. And even if you're in a vocational technical school, you're still going to have to learn all this same academic material. Which is idealistic because in one respect, it's saying just because you're studying to be a plumber doesn't mean you won't ever go to college. But then there are all of these downstream difficult consequences for kids in schools. One thing that I want to add here is that the policies that are salient during any particular time period, right, the policies that seem viable and valuable to people reflect the broader ideas of the time period. And by that, I mean that right, policymaking does not happen in a vacuum. It happens in the context of the broader culture, and it reflects the assumptions and beliefs that people have at a particular time. So during the 1970s, it made more sense to talk about these out-of-control kids uh, than it would have in, let's say, the 90s or the 2000s, when ideas about exposing systems to markets or about performance management just had much more of a kind of common sense vibe to people who were crafting policy at the time. 
The other thing that hasn't been mentioned yet, but does seem important is this idea that schools are like businesses and also that schools respond to data. So the, the sort of big obsession with, oh, we're going to publish the rates. And this was, you know, something that Democrats pushed hard for it with NCLB is like, okay, we're going to make you disaggregate your results. So the idea that like people with information demanding from their schools, like that's a that's a new sort of feedback loop that was imagined. And it took time to get there for a long time in the 60s and 70s. People were pretty skeptical that you could compare schools, that you could compare states because of this history of local control. And a lot of that kind of falls away by the 90s. And people start feeling pretty comfortable saying, oh, well, here's the test results and here's the score and this school and this school, they're not doing the same thing. And so I think there is on both sides of the aisle, a view that that like more data, more sunshine, you know, sunshine as a disinfectant for accountability, that that becomes part of the conversation too, and drives some of the interest in regular recurring tests for more kids, and that we should make those public so that they can be part of this sort of competition school marketplace kind of thing. One more thing I'd add there is that the fashion in public administration theory writ large in the 80s and 90s is all about performance management and setting objectives and managing to meet those objectives. You know, it's where you get the National Health Service in Britain measuring and holding hospitals accountable for how long it takes from when you walk in the door in the emergency room to when you see a nurse. And the hospitals responded to that by creating a new position called a hello nurse. So that you would walk in the door and the person who said, hello, welcome to our hospital, sit over there, would be a qualified nurse. And then they could check off. Patient was seen by a qualified nurse within the first five minutes, but no medical treatment had actually taken place yet. There are millions of ways to game these systems. And that's where arguably somebody should have realized that that was going to be the problem before we decided to make all the schools follow the same model that wasn't necessarily having the intended results in healthcare. So we've got the rise of big data and all things performance management, but Katie says there's something else we need to understand as we grapple with the evolution of high-stakes testing. That would be the paradoxical role played by the civil rights community. In the 70s, you have civil rights lawsuits against graduation tests because they're disproportionately burdening students of color. But then by the 1980s and 90s, and even right up to when Congress was considering ESSA, the most recent Elementary and Secondary Education Act reauthorization, the pro-civil rights position in 2015 was to be in favor of retaining school-level accountability ratings. There was some pressure from the teachers' unions to report more kind of a range of indicators for each school and let people draw their own conclusions about the school's performance. But the civil rights position was in Congress was defined as this is our drop dead issue. We have to keep a single summative rating for schools in there. And it's really counterintuitive if you come at the, if you're reading about that debate, knowing the history of where everything came from. Exit exams for students are mostly a relic. But test-based accountability is still very much the norm, with consequences falling on schools. So if it didn't make sense to apply high stakes to students, why does it make any more sense to apply high stakes to schools? I'm not being entirely sarcastic. It's really hard once the federal government and the state governments have all publicly committed themselves to the idea of improving schools for all students 
getting all students to high standards, I can't imagine being the policymaker who stands up and says something that their rivals can then say as, oh, you know, Senator McDermott just gave up. She doesn't care what happens to your kids. There is this sense of like, okay, there's these are organizations that no one's going to stand behind and say, there's no room for improvement here. But I do think one of the responses to that challenge, right, when it becomes difficult to see an obvious way forward, though lots of people have their silver bullets and and they're like quick turnarounds, you know, the tough principle, the the better discipline policy is you just say to the market, well, it's not up to us to come up with a solution. Let's leave it and, and they'll duke it out and the best model will come to the fore. It does feel like a response to the, the challenge that Katie's highlighting about like, well, what is what is one to do? In some sense, I think that there's just an issue with what in the law we would call a sympathetic plaintiff, right? That when the stakes get applied to students in a way that damages their life opportunities, it's a lot easier to be sympathetic to them than to the relatively abstract concept of a school. And particularly given the fact that the student being denied a diploma not only is facing lifelong consequences for that, but also, right, that we're still talking about somebody who was a child for most of their schooling experience, and that it's just an easier case to make that adults have a responsibility for, you know, carrying out an education that works for young people. It's just fascinating that more states are enacting promotion tests for younger kids now. I would imagine that the rhetoric is something like, because the high stakes testing regime is going to start for these kids in third and fourth grade, we better make sure that they're on grade level by the end of second grade. And what better way to do that than to not promote them into third grade unless they're at grade level? Just be really interesting to see how this plays out in the long term, because it's much easier to frame it as, well, we're going to give these students what they need, which is more time. You know, we need to teach them the material again, whatever. It's much better than we're going to cast this 18-year-old out without a diploma. So, Jennifer, I want to bring you back in here. I saw what you just did there. Uh-huh. Yeah. And and I'm hoping that you can just add a sousson of insight here uh, about what's happening in Massachusetts right now. So it's such a good question because, as our experts pointed out, you know, there are really only a handful of states left that still have these graduation requirements in place. And a big part of the reason for that is that there's really no sort of popular demand for them. And yet Massachusetts is hurtling along in the opposite direction. Just last August, our education elites voted to make the graduation standard tougher. And what was interesting was that they had to subject this to a, you know, a public process and, and uh, solicit feedback. And there was nobody who, who thought it was a good idea. And so you really <laughs> wonder, you wonder like, well, what is the impetus in, in Massachusetts? And I just keep thinking back to one of the points that you've been making a lot lately that that while the stirring rhetorical case for a certain kind of business-minded education reform may have withered, you know, all the, the laws and punishments are still on the books. And we very much have a policy apparatus in Massachusetts that that is still all in for that approach, even as they've lost a lot of the public. 
Yeah, and one of the things you hear a lot here in Massachusetts is that you know, these are the sorts of things we need to do in order to stay number one. And of course, you know, what does number one mean? There are all kinds of areas in education where we are not number one. Uh, for instance, we have glaring opportunity gaps across race and income, uh, across language and special education status. But, you know, if you're looking, for instance, at NEEP scores or at, you know, PISA results, Massachusetts looks pretty good, and you constantly hear that as a rationale for, quote-unquote, raising the bar. And, you know, I think that this is just a reflection of the fact that context matters, right? That that's a harder case to make in other states, right? That's not a case you would hear people making in Mississippi. Um, and it doesn't mean that it's right. It doesn't mean that young people are going to be well served by this, but it does reflect the linkage between the kind of policy rhetoric that ends up being deployed and, and is successful, I think, in this case, um, and the context in which that policy rhetoric is being used. So, Jack, I feel like I fell short in my expert role here no, by no, a number were, of metrics. You, you, were, you were great. Well, I noticed, one, that I spoke for a whole lot less time than you usually do. <laughs> oh, and two, I see, I see. We're damning the faint praise here. I didn't require multiple takes the way that you usually do. <laughs> All right, a moment ago, I said that exit exams were mostly a relic, but eight states, including the state that three of us are recording from right now, still have graduation tests. And there isn't an easy explanation for a kind of state. Maybe it's just the states with, you know, very high achievement on the NAEP. Maybe it's just states on the political left. Maybe it's just small states. But it's Florida and Illinois and Louisiana and Massachusetts, New York, Texas, Virginia, Wyoming. You couldn't have more of a hodgepodge there. So what gives? I have no theory about Wyoming, but if you look at the rest of those states, some southern states, which have historically just always done the kind of testing and accountability thing sooner and more aggressively than the rest of the country, you've got states with a lot of educational inequality, and that's the bucket that I would put Massachusetts and New York in. New York also has this long, long, unique history about the regents exams. They've effectively had high school graduation tests, I think, since the 1800s. Certainly, they've made the distinction between a regent's diploma and a local diploma in the 70s, certainly, and I guess right up until the present time. As for Massachusetts, Katie thinks that the reason for the persistence of the graduation test has to do with who it does and doesn't punish. What I know about Massachusetts's graduation test is that it's got a very high first-time pass rate. It's, I think, in the 80s, possibly even the 90s. So it probably isn't burdening a very large number of kids, and the kids that it's burdening are almost certainly disproportionately students with disabilities who are mostly not exempt from the MCAS requirement in Massachusetts, and low-income students of color who are going to high schools that aren't particularly well-known to the kinds of people who call up their state legislators and yell about things. My eyes have really been opened to the way that this all feels in schools by one of my grad students who's a math teacher 
in an urban high school, and she occasionally has taught an entire course for seniors, which is called MCAS Portfolio. These are students who are using the state's appeal process. You don't absolutely have to pass the MCAS if you can prove that you have mastered the material to the same extent as students who did pass the MCAS. You can get an exemption from the test. So she spends an entire school year just sitting with the kids while they do these math problems that are going to go document the fact that they know math. Now, the only reason I know that is that I know an urban high school math teacher. Okay, so while this episode may not have produced a grand theory about why a handful of states remain attached to high-stakes graduation tests, Ethan says we can learn a lot from one state that swung hard against a policy it once embraced. California, for instance, is interesting because not only did it get rid of its exit exam, but it retroactively granted diplomas to students who had been prevented from getting a diploma because they failed the exam. The state legislature not only said like, no more of this, but like, maybe this wasn't the greatest idea. And so like, it wasn't unanimous, but it was like pretty healthy margin that it passed in the Senate. And they basically just granted people their diploma. I mean, it'd be interesting to talk to those students. Like now that you have your diploma, was it useful? At least some research was suggesting students, even when they failed the exam, were just saying they had a high school diploma. You know, who knows how many people People were actually being checked on. But I think it is telling about the difficult politics that a state like California both says like, oh, that was our bad. And then like, we're going to try to undo the damage. Why Massachusetts persists, though, is like then all the more curious. A big thanks to our special guests, Katie McDermott and Ethan Hutt, and to Jack for his leadership. We will be right back to discuss the persistence of test-based accountability. Lots of folks have ideas about what matters when it comes to public education, so why don't we hear more about them? And we'll be revealing the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint, two letters, A and P. If this intrigues you, just go to patreon.com slash haveyouheardpodcast to become a supporter. Jennifer, I'm thinking about the fact that Katie and Ethan, when we were talking to them, asked us for our thoughts about why Massachusetts is an outlier here. And the more I think about it, the more I think that Massachusetts isn't really an outlier here, just in the sense that, you know, it may have a graduation requirement in the form of a de facto exit exam, like only seven other states. But I think like all states, and this applies also to the lasting influence of accountability testing for schools, there just really isn't a powerful alternative vision, right? That people are pushing against this, but there really isn't a sort of unified call for whatever comes next. That, I think you're so right. There, um, I don't know if you were following this week, but Matt Iglesias, of whom I'm not a particular fan, had a, a post on his Substack about whatever happened to education reform, and sort of hearkening back to the you know education reform and a certain kind of test-based accountability being the civil rights issue of our time. And it's really true. Like you just do not hear people making that same case right now. Um, but not only do you still have all the laws on the books, there's really like 
like nothing else has emerged to to take its place. And, you know, I'm thinking about that in, in Massachusetts. Like we really, we did have this very successful push to, to increase school funding. People really rallied around that. But I think right now people are much clearer on what they what they don't want than they are able to articulate a compelling counter vision to what schools should actually do. And you see that in just, you know, polls that offer really jumbled accounts of what people want. So like everyone thinks that teachers should pay more. They really hate book banning. They're worried about school safety. But then when it you, you look into what they think schools should do, it's really like, it's not about college prep. Um, there's, you know, basic skills, but it's it's a real jumble. The moment is jumbled. Yeah, I think one of the challenges there is that successful reform movements of the past half century have really had a kind of narrow focus. And one of the ways in which that has engendered a blowback has been that people are seeing well, there are a lot of things we're trying to do in school, right? And it's actually hard to articulate a kind of single vision and pull in policy elites to support that when you're saying lots of different things at the same time. Hey, teaching should be a profession. Schools should be fully funded. Maybe we should think about integration again. What about the curriculum? What about all these subjects that have been squeezed out? And aren't kids humans? Shouldn't we treat them that way? Shouldn't they be allowed to play? And shouldn't they be, you know, physically and emotionally healthy and happy. So that that's hard to, to put on a t-shirt, right? Um, I'm thinking back of the NBA jerseys and one of them was education reform. It's hard to squeeze everything that I was just talking about under the back of a jersey. So Jack, I bet I know what people are most curious about in the whole world right now. <laughs> We've got, we do have a worldwide audience. So they're wondering, you know, here, Jack has been in the driver's seat through this whole episode. He started us off. He brought Jennifer in as the expert. But is he really going to try to lure people over the paywall? Could that happen? I'm so glad you mentioned that, Jennifer, because there's a topic that I have been wanting to talk about. And I think that you'll be interested in it and particularly talking about it in the safe space of the weeds. Go on. (laughs) So... The Advanced Placement Program has been in the news lately, uh, you know, in no small part due to the fact that Ron DeSantis recently politicized it. I wrote a history of the Advanced Placement Program a number of years ago, and as a result, I get asked to weigh in on it from time to time whenever there are major changes or minor controversies. And I think there are some things to think about there with regard to, you know, why is it that we've got this third party that is essentially controlling a major part of the high school curriculum? And, you know, what does AP uh, have to do with things like tracking or uh, equitable opportunities for young people? So if listeners want to join in and and hear this conversation, uh, I think think all it takes is $2 a month, uh, which is the second lowest level of Patreon sponsorship. Those funds are essential for keeping the show going and for paying our fantastic producer. And for those who give, I think it's $10 a month, you'll be getting a paperback copy of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, recently released, as well as our undying gratitude. And Jack, you did such a good job, but how do people find it? Where do they go? 
they go to patreon.com and search for Have You Heard? I so want to deliver this last little bit in a deep Jack voice. <laughs> for those of you who don't want to reach into your wallets, purses, or crypto boxes, <laughs> there are plenty of other ways to share the show. We love it when you reach out to us on Twitter or or email us. Did I leave anything else out? What is this show's Twitter handle, Jennifer? At Have You Heard Pod. Uh huh. And it's and much how, harder being Jack than than how, I thought. Yeah, there are a lot of things you have to remember. Nuances. A- yeah. And the website. The website is HaveYouHeardPodcast.com. Uh huh. Correct. And oh, then, what about if they want to like give us a rating or something like oh, that? Oh yes. So they should go um, wherever you listen to podcasts. You should leave us a rating, um, a very friendly one, because that helps people find the show. And be a subscriber. And and be a subscriber, so you don't ever miss an episode. I give you a B plus for that, Jennifer. But because of grade inflation, I think I'll put recorded as an A in my grade book. Thank you, Jack. And on that note, I'm Jack Schneider. And I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And this is Have You Heard.